0: Luke chapter 23, and you'll want to look about verse 32 or so. Luke 23, 32. It's the principal moment of Christianity. If you walked around and you interviewed Christians and you said, what is the most important thing about Christianity? I bet you 90% of them would say something about the cross of Jesus Christ. They might say the life and death of Christ, something along those lines. But somewhere, I bet you 90% of Christians would say something about the cross of Christ. The cross has been the symbol of Christianity for thousands of years. It's one of these central ideas about who Christ was, what Christ did, and why there's still a religion in his name. But the understanding of the cross sometimes gets boiled down into this, he forgave me of my sins. That's true, but what Christ did on the cross is amazingly deeper than that, okay? So what Christ did on the cross, yes, he forgave our sins. That is exactly what happened. He paid the price for our sins, absolutely. But what exactly happened on the cross is so much richer and so much greater that to lose part of it is to essentially misapprehend who Christ fundamentally is. Like if I was here and I was gonna say, what do you have to understand about Christianity or about the cross in order to become a Christian? All you have to know is Jesus died for you. Repentance and sin, that's, that, that's all you have to know. You can learn the rest as you go. But to mature as a Christian, and I think probably most of you here tonight, that's your goal, to mature as believers. You need to dive into what the atonement was. What did Christ accomplish on the cross And how is that relatable to you? Because understanding the fullness of the atonement is going to help you understand who you are in Christ and how God relates to you now because of Christ. So let's go to the principal event. Luke 23, 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. You may hear that word, the skull, in its more formal name called Golgotha, the skull. And they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, "Forgive them, uh, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. of the Jews. Skip ahead to verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurions saw what had taken place, He praised God saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. Understanding that Christ died on the cross is one thing. Probably in Sunday school, if you went to Sunday school, you heard vivid descriptions of what happened to Jesus on the cross. Not like when you're in kindergarten, and then he bled into his lungs. Like, that's what I'm going to teach my kindergartner, but probably not you, okay? But the physical torture of what happened on the cross in our age is one of the things we become most uh, most concerned with. We understand that to be crucified was so horrible that they actually started using the word as an adjective for pain. Have you ever said, I was in excruciating pain? Have you ever said that? That's the word, cruciating. Uh, That's the very picture, that death on the cross was one of the worst possible ways to die. Incredibly painful. Not to mention all the torture Jesus underwent beforehand. But the reality is Jesus was actually undergoing a much worse torment and one that terrified him. Okay, if you go back just about 18 hours earlier when Jesus is in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane, he begins to pray. And he prays something, and while he's praying, events happen that we need to take a special look at. So flip back a chapter to Luke 22, verse 41. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus has taken some of his disciples, and he begins to pray, and this is how the Bible describes it. In Luke 22, 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing... "'Remove this cup from me. "'Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done.' "'And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, "'strengthening him. "'And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly, "'and his sweat became like great drops of blood "'falling down to the ground.'" Now what we know now, scientifically, is that Jesus' body was undergoing such stress that the capillaries in his skin were beginning to explode. And so blood was mingling with his sweat and and falling down. But what we don't know is what in his mind was going on that caused this amount of stress. Okay, so take the full picture of what the Bible says. Jesus Christ is God. He is God in the flesh. He knows everything that is about to happen. All through all the Gospels, Jesus over and over again not only prophecies what kind of death he's going to die, but also that he will be resurrected in three days. So he knows I'm going to die on the cross and I'll be alive again in three days. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And furthermore, Being God, he can get out of it whenever he wants to. What could possibly be on Jesus' mind about this event that is going to so terrify him, to terrify God? I want you to think about that for a minute. What terrifies God? nothing I can think of. But something did. Now, in our age, we're a bunch of wimps. We obviously immediately think of the physical pain. We, that's our first thought. Oh, I'm getting nails in my hand, right? But think about this. This, this. When I first started thinking about this a few years ago, this is a question I went around. I went around to women who were nine and a half months pregnant. I mean, birth is imminent. And I would say, are you scared? And they'd go. Were you scared when you, when you were at that point? And they'd say, yeah, yeah, I was scared at that point, but I knew it was going to hurt really bad, but then it was going to be over. I mean, I mean, you know it's going to hurt, but you know it's going to be over. My wife was like, I'm terrified, so I'm getting an epidural. Out! I'm out! Like, that's what she did, okay? But at the same time, I thought, well, what if it comes and you can't get an epidural? Well, it'll hurt really bad, and then it'll be over. So... And I don't say this derogatorily at all. If an, a human woman can walk toward childbirth and exc- excruciating pain and go, I'll get through it. Are you telling me that God couldn't walk toward the cross and go, I'll make it? Do you see, you see what I'm saying? I mean, some of you in here have had surgeries where you knew going in, I, when I wake up, it's gonna hurt. But you gotta do what you gotta do. Are you telling me that you can walk toward that surgery not freaking out, but Jesus can't walk toward the cross and not freak out? Something is going on here that we have to dive into. And that something occurs in a word that you would throw away as a word picture like I did for a long time. And it's the word cup. If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Now if you had some Bible software that will look up words for you in the New Testament and you typed in the word cup and you limited your search to the Gospels, you would find some interesting returns. You'd find things like fill the cup up and he drank from it and all this kind of stuff. But you'd also find Jesus talking about a cup in some very uniquely significant ways. Uh for example in Matthew chapter 20 verse 22, Matthew 20:22, 20, Jesus answered, "You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink?" And they said to him, "We are able." And Jesus said, "You're not able, you're stupid." That's what the next verse says. You don't need to look it up. That's what it says in Greek. Idiotica, that's what it says. You're morons. Um I'm totally kidding, except I'm not kidding. That's that's what it says. Um You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup in John 18? So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. This is actually right after Gethsemane when they've come to arrest him. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So Jesus' image of the cross is usually given of, of what he has to do, what he has to accomplish. He's constantly using a reference to a cup. But what is that reference? The reference is to a verse in Isaiah, and the reference is to a part of God that we commonly deny. In Isaiah 51, verse 21, it says this, therefore hear this, you who are afflicted, you who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, says your Lord, the Lord, your God who pleads the cause of his people, behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, and you shall drink no more. When Jesus is using this image of a cup, he's using a very common Old Testament image of the wrath of God. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, it's not nails in his hand that are terrifying him. It is the knowledge that on the cross, he will become afflicted with the full wrath of God. That whatever hell is, Jesus will experience it on the cross and it terrifies him. What's the only thing that can terrify God? God. What's the only thing that can cut a diamond? A diamond. See, Jesus knows about God's wrath, and he knows he's about to undergo it, and it terrifies him. The wrath of God, of course, is not our favorite attribute of God. We prefer love, we prefer grace, we prefer mercy. Those are the gifts of God and the attributes of God we wanna talk about, and we should praise God for his grace. And we should praise God for his love, and we should praise God for his mercy. But more and more, we watch as more and more teachers of the Bible try to say, God is not a wrathful God. And it's foolishness, because what it does is undercut exactly what Jesus came to do. I mean, if you take away a huge portion of what the cross accomplished, what's the point of it all? If the cross is only about God showing you he loves you, can't he give you a billion dollars in perfect health to do that? No, what Jesus did on the cross was something so much deeper. He showed his love for us by engaging and satisfying the wrath of God for us. You have to understand that while we don't want God to be wrathful, the Bible has zero problem describing God this way. It's all our problem. It's all our little uh, psyche, you know, psychological, therapeutic, gospel, make me feel good needs that are encouraging teachers to go, well, I, I can't believe in a God that has to have wrath to forgive us. That seems barbaric to me. It seems perfectly just to me. See if you wanna love God, you have to love God for who he is and who God is, is perfect in every one of his attributes. And if you take one of his attributes and go, well he's he's not that, then what you're saying is you don't want God to be God. God is just, just. And because he is just, he has reactions to sin. Wrath. I mean, the book of Revelation is filled with the image of God coming to satisfy his justice for the sins of humanity with his wrath. In in Revelation 14, verse 10, it says, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath. This is the person who doesn't worship Christ, but worships the false prophet or the beast. He will also drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast in its image, whoever receives the mark of its name. God's vengeance over sin is part of his holy nature and he is filled with, with wrath over sin and what Christ does on the cross has to be in that context or you only have a half cross. You don't have the full picture of what Jesus did for you and I promise you when I'm done with this lesson, you're gonna see why it matters. To take away the wrath of God is to take away a huge portion of what Paul tries to teach in the book of Romans. In the book of Romans, it takes Paul exactly 18 verses to start talking about God's wrath. He doesn't even start talking about grace and faith and repentance until he's done talking about wrath, and it lasts three chapters. Romans 1 1 through 15 is just introductions. I'm Paul, I'm an apostle. Praise be to Jesus. I wanna come, I wanna preach for you. Romans 1, 16 and 17 are his thesis statement for the book of Romans. What's the book of Romans about? The book of Romans is about verses 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation for all who believe. First for the Jews, then for the Gentile, for the righteous shall live by faith. That's what the whole book of Romans is about. Verse 18, 18th verse. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Paul doesn't know how to preach the gospel without a presentation of God's wrath over sin. It won't make sense to him at all. He could pick up a book by some of today's leading authors God's not mad at sin, and Paul'd go, well, I guess they didn't read my book, okay? Because Paul doesn't understand that concept. Immediately, he begins to put the picture of what Jesus did into the system of sacrifices used in Old Testament Israel to forgive the sins of the people and allow them to live as God's holy people. And it all culminates... In one of the high passages, in the most important six verses in the Bible, in my opinion, Romans 3:21 through 26, you should memorize them and have them tattooed in Greek on your face so you see them every day in the mirror. These are the most important verses in the Bible, in my opinion. You can have your favorite verse. That's good. Know these verses backwards and forwards because they are the centerpiece of your Christianity. And in them, in verse 25, he says, Jesus... Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Let me build from the clauses backwards. Number one, in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Somebody can look at God and go, you're not just God. You allowed people to sin and you didn't get them. Why didn't you get them? Why didn't God come down and give Hitler a brain aneurysm when the first time he thought about killing all those people? Why didn't God do that? Why didn't God make Adam Lanza drive into a car wreck on his way to that school. Why didn't God do that? You ever had those questions? You better. Why didn't God do that? This is the charge. Why did you pass over former sins? Why haven't you punished them? The answer, Paul says, is divine forbearance. Because if God judges one sinner, he's gonna judge them all. If he's gonna come in and put somebody on trial for their sin, he's gonna do the whole world. That's gonna happen one day, by the way. The cross shows God's righteousness, that he is just, that he has not allowed sins to go unpunished, that in fact, he did punish sin. How? In Christ whom he put forward as a propitiation by his blood. And I know that every person in this room uses the word propitiation in daily conversation. Like you're constantly tweeting it. Propitia what? Like that's what you're putting up. (laughs) If you have an NIV Bible, and every one of you probably does, it probably says sacrifice of atonement. Right above it, write the word propitiation, and I'm dead serious. Write in the Bible? (laughs) Yeah, write in the Bible. In the 1900s, a war, a theological war, was fought over this world. Certain liberal theologians wanted to change this word to expiation. Conservative theologians wanted to keep it propitiation. That is the right translation, by the way. You say, what's the difference? Here's the difference. An expiation is a sacrifice of atonement that just pays the price of sin. That's all it does. It writes a check. How much do I owe you? A life? Okay. A propitiation is a sacrifice that removes wrath. That's the difference. A propitiation is a sacrifice that removes wrath. Now, here's the example I use every time. So I'm driving in my car, my wife, my son, my wife's on the passenger side, my two year old son sitting in his little chair doing his thing, playing his Elmo rock and roll guitar, which is awesome. <laughs> okay. We're driving through a stoplight, drunk driver runs the red light, T-bones this, kills my wife, kills my son. His insurance company is going to write me a check. Your van was worth $30,000. Your wife was worth $200,000. Your son is worth $10,000. Here's your money, we're done. That's an expiation. Am I all good? Am I walking around looking at that guy and going, well his insurance cut me a check so I'm good. Are we good? Does anybody in here think I'm good now with that guy? No. Can they write me any check that makes things all good between us? No. Not even if the state comes, arrests him, throws him in jail, and he accidentally gets put in death row and killed. Am I okay? There's nothing that makes it okay. A propitiation is an offering that makes it okay. No human can make that offering, but God can. And why I go to this labor long, 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 long explanation of what propitiation is, is because you need to know what Christ did on the cross was remove God's wrath for your sin from you. Because most Christians, while they believe God has forgiven their sins, still sees him as a God that's sitting there going like this. Are you freaking kidding me? Are you kidding me? And while rationally you may know that Jesus' death on the cross forgave forgave your sins, emotionally, I bet most of us, most days walk through going, trying to duck our heads. God, don't, don't get me today, God. See, you don't know the cross the way you should because what Jesus did on the cross was take all of God's wrath away from you. Jesus' offering on the cross made you and God okay. You're cool. Now, he is your father. The wrathful God of the Old Testament, and that God is true and real, and that God remains for those who will not accept Christ's offering. That God is there. But the Christian is crossed over into something new. See, the Bible gives us a picture of, of two people, one is Adam and one is Christ and you are in one of those camps. This is called, a big theological term called the federal headship. Somebody's representing you. Somebody is your federal head. Now, did you have a mother and a father? I'm not talking about did you have a mama and a daddy? Not everybody gets one of those. But every person in this room has a mama and a daddy. I mean, a a mother and a father, right? If you had a mother and a father, the first thing you have to know is that these two camps are totally divided from one another. There's no crossing over. And you and I are severely in the Adam camp. Adam is our federal head. We are born into sin. But what Christ did on the cross, is to remove the wrath, not only of our sin, but of all sin, even all the way back to our first father, Adam, to where now, Christ is our federal head. And God sees us, not as a member of a fallen race, but as a member of his adopted family through Christ. See, that's a federal head. In Romans, Paul tries to explain it, and he says it like this. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. See, Adam, one man's sin and every human being after them is born into sin because of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If you've ever asked yourself, how can one guy's death on the cross count for every person in the room? Shouldn't there just be like one guy he can take the place of? Have you ever asked that question? The answer is federal headship. God's playing by his own rules. Hey, I applied Adam to everybody. I can apply Christ to everybody I want to. Same rules. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more, that should say, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace through the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Now you're saying, now wait a minute. Everybody was born into sin because of Adam. Shouldn't that mean that everybody's going to be saved through Jesus? No, because it says those who will receive Christ came to save his people, but not just by paying for their sin, by saving them from God's wrath. We wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We're gonna spend some time in worship the worship gonna come back out. And I want you to spend this time in worship thinking about the cross of Christ, but more than that. Understanding that the wrath of God has been removed from your sin. God, if he's dealing with you about a sin in your life, is doing so as a loving father. He may discipline you. He may bring pain into your life to get you to quit just like a good father will discipline his child. You're not gonna play with that match, you two-year-old. I don't care how fun it is. God says to you, I love you. I am not gonna let you sin without stopping you. But it's not from wrath. It's from love. Because all God's wrath was swallowed by Christ on the cross. He drank the cup for us. Let's pray together. Our Father God, we thank you for the offering that Christ has in our place taken. The wrath over sin justly appointed to me and to every person in this room, he swallows. He takes it. The hell I should have was poured on him in the cross. And Father, I pray now that you allow each one of us by your Holy Spirit's power to see you as a father, that we are adopted now in your family. Your love for us is poured out. And I pray as we worship, we can focus on the glories of Jesus's death on the cross that paved a way for us to know you free from wrath free from disapproving judgment but as a father looks at his sons and daughters and says I love you and I will do what's best for you even when you disagree with me we praise you